Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast, sponsored by Global Scholars. I'm your host, Jordan Plank. Joining me are Dr. Stan Wallace and Dr. J.P. Moreland. In this episode, we discuss mental health. We are not licensed therapists, and this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for professional, psychological, or psychiatric help. As you listen to us discuss these topics, we pray you feel our encouragement to seek the professional help you or those you love may need. Welcome, gentlemen. It's so good to see you. Great to be here. Good to see you again, too. In our last episode, JP mentioned the importance of bringing our bodies into our spiritual life. And one of the barriers we may encounter in that process, especially the process of living a really integrated life of faith, is anxiety. JP's book, Finding Quiet, addresses this issue, which is a struggle for so many people, by telling his own story and offering strategies to help us work through anxiety and the ways that it impacts our life. So JP, I want to open by asking you to summarize your experience of anxiety mm-hmm. and then kind of tell us what what led you to write Finding Quiet. Well, I was born with a genetic predisposition to anxiety uh, through my mother's side of the family. That means that it's easier for me to get anxious than most people. It's not, doesn't, it's not deterministic, uh, thank God. And I had always been kind of high energy and had a little anxiety and, and a little bit of depression over the years and decades, but was never dysfunctional uh, until 2003 when I had a nervous breakdown for the first time in my life after a hard school year. And I ended up having panic attacks uh, and I didn't know what they were. And to make a long story short, I was out of commission for seven months. Hmm. Uh, I was in fetal position on the couch. Uh, I was afraid, having irrational fears. I began to take uh, medication uh, under the uh, direction of a psychiatrist and got into some good Christian counseling and began to do some things in my spiritual life. And after seven months, I got well. Uh, Ten years later, it happened to me again for five months because I had another year from hell in terms of stress. And uh, again, the last day of school, I I collapsed. And uh, what I did is I decided this was 2013. And I just told the Lord, listen, I'd rather not go through this again. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to use my research skills. If you'll help guide me in this. I'm going to read everything I can on anxiety and depression and narrow it down to something I can do and start practicing some things that will change my life. And as a result of that, I found a set of practices and learned some things about anxiety and depression. I'll just say anxiety from now on for brevity's sake that were literally transformative to me. We We use that word. Uh, sometimes cavalierly, and I'm not. Uh, I haven't been even close to any kind of significant anxiety since for the last, uh, I'm going to say, eight years. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it's literally been amazing. And Mm -hmm. uh, I wrote the book, Jordan, because I I didn't want to waste, I didn't want to waste my suffering. Mm -hmm. 
I wanted my suffering to at least count for something. And I felt like if I shared the things that helped me, maybe this would turn out for the greater good in the long run. And so mm -hmm. that's what I did. Uh, and uh, that book is a, an expression of the things that really changed my own life. If you go on Amazon, it's just helped a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It is an excellent book. I am one of the people that this book has helped. Oh, good. I, yeah, I struggle with anxiety and mm -hmm. I have very, very similar story, but kind of one generation removed. My mother's uh, father passed away suddenly when she was elementary age. And those kinds of traumatic experiences oh, ripple yeah. through generations in ways that really scientists are just now getting like the barest glimpse of. And yeah, I was diagnosed with a generalized anxiety disorder as a young teen. And my situation was complicated by some environmental factors and a yes. chronic pain disease that could be really debilitating. Well, that doesn't help. Yes. And, you know, yeah. uh, a year or two ago, anxiety passed depression as the number one mental health disorder in America. Mm -hmm. And, uh, a lot of it has to do with the cultural conditions in which we live. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, a couple of psychologists, uh, you'd think they were Christians by the way they identified, but they've identified the three cultural conditions that are creating a context where we now have an epidemic of anxiety. And it's not all cultural, but that's got a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. And the first one is uh, that the pace of life that we lead is too fast uh, we have too many options, and so we worry about deciding which of 20 cars to buy instead of they used to buy three. And and so all of all the stimulation of technology is making our internal motor race too quickly, and we need to slow down. And that's what the Bible talks about, about finding quiet and, and mm -hmm. going to be alone. The second one was an inordinate individualism in American culture. And I'm for individualism. As long as it is also a balanced off with a commitment to a larger community, in my case, the body of Christ largely is manifested in my work in my church. But Americans were not made to be isolated. And the individualism we find today is of the form of isolation from other people. The third one, believe it or not, was the emergence of moral relativism. Now, I was shocked, but they went on to explain why. When people believed that there were objectively knowable moral truths and virtue characteristics, uh, then they they thought that there was at least a way out of their, their problems. If they would begin to cultivate joy and, and peace and, and kindness and self-control, things like that that were virtues— that gave them hope that they would develop in such a way that eventually they could grow out of this. But in moral relativism, nothing rises above the level of custom in its gravitas. There's, there just is no deep, heavy, right way to live. And so given that, people have lost hope that there is an answer to their problems that they could actually choose to pursue. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. So it is now epidemic, and it's got a lot to do with the secularization of American society. Mm 
And it's impacted Christians, don't get me wrong, but we're a part of the culture, and that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Well, those three factors, I when I read them, just rang so true uh, in my own life as a believer. And uh, yes. I do want to call out another book I've read on the first item, Please. the hurry that our culture promotes and in- induces. The book is by a pastor, and it's named The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by Mark Comer. And it was just... John Mark Comer, I think. Yeah. Yes. And it was Mm -hmm. just so helpful the way... And it's written in a pastoral way that shares a lot of his own experience as a mega church pastor and having to just walk away from it because it was just not healthy for his soul. And I resonated with a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And secondly, I really enjoyed the analogy you gave in the book of a Monopoly game to illustrate the despair that comes without having some groundedness and understanding how one can can move toward a a healthy life. Can can you share that illustration for the the listeners? Absolutely. Um, uh, Suppose that you were invited to someone's house to play Monopoly and you show up, you've got expectations about what you're going to do. And your host says, well, look, it's going to be a little bit different. You see, there's the Monopoly board. And when it's your turn, if you want to, you can put hotels anywhere you'd like and just set up the board any way you want. By the way, you can also uh, turn on the TV and watch something. Uh, You can fix a sandwich. There's a lot of food in the fridge. And I've got a coin over here that if you want to, you can flip it and see if you can guess if it lands heads or tails. Any, anything you want to do is your turn. Well, you think I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to, I'm stacking the place with hotels on the, on the valuable properties. And so you do that and you sit back and say, okay, your turn feeling very smug and complacent about what you've done. Well, I, I, in my turn, I dump the board upside down <laughs> and I flip a coin and I say, it's your turn. Now, this is odd to you, so you decide to do it again. You know, you put the hotels up again, and, uh, and and you're thinking, I maybe I just had a moment of not understanding. And so I, in my turn, swipe everything off the board, and I turn on the TV. <laughs> now, it wouldn't take long for you to realize that it doesn't matter what you do when it's your turn. And here's why. If the game as a whole has no meaning, the individual moves in the game are purposeless. Now, if life as a whole is like that Monopoly game, if we if we're accidents, we were not brought into this world for any purpose, we were just coughed up as a, as a random accident. If there's no reason we're here, there's no final purpose to life of any sort, then we're like the Monopoly game. There, If there's no meaning to the whole, then it really doesn't matter what you do day to day with your life. It doesn't make any difference. Uh, and that's why uh, the French existentialist who got this mm-hmm drew the proper conclusion that it doesn't matter if you help a little old lady across the street or run over her with your car, because at the end of the day, neither act will make any difference in a billions of years old universe on a little dot called Earth circling a very mediocre star. 
Mm-hmm. And I think I, that's that's where that mm-hmm. illustration fits mm-hmm. in, Stan. Yeah, it's so helpful. And for listeners who aren't familiar with the French existentialists, these are people like Albert Camus and Jean-Paul Sartre, who yes. really put their finger on this reality and, and were willing to name it as such. And and mm-hmm. since their writings to this day are are still widely read because people say, yeah, that's that's how I feel. There is this angst of meaninglessness. That's anxiety producing. Years ago, Christopher Lash, who is a sociologist and a very astute cultural observer, I don't think he was a believer, uh, wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. And he made the point that psychologists were then seeing, and this was like in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, were then seeing more and more patients who were coming in with anxiety without any particular thing bothering them. Uh, There was no particular event that was traumatizing. Uh, There was no personality disorder that lent itself to them being anxious. And what Lash said they discovered was that there was a permeated atmosphere of anxiety in American culture due to the angst of meaninglessness mm-hmm. the the nihilism the 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 fact that the, that there is no god and nothing has a purpose is something that produces fear and dread and anxiety in and of itself so that's in the drinking water today in mm-hmm. a lot of places and it contributes to this problem mm-hmm. absolutely and you think about the historical context there those people likely were children of people who grew up or had their adulthood during World War II, an incredibly anxiety-producing time. And then even in the 60s and 70s and into the 80s, you have the Cold War. And as these events pile on top of each other and they aren't met with a reasonable a reasonable way to to deal with that kind of stress, People were not being instructed and, ah, yes, this is a very traumatic time. It may be a good idea to take care of yourself or maybe talk to somebody, reach out to a friend. It's just interesting even to read psychology textbooks from that time and see the kind of advice that people were getting and giving and understand how different it is what we know now about both human resilience and what it takes to deal with a really stressful milieu, a really stressful time um, in a culture. Mm -hmm. And add to that the quote-unquote death of God movement, and if Mm -hmm. not death, the privatization of religious truth so that there's no longer a general sense that, that there actually is a God, we can know this is true, and we can base our lives on that, and you have the perfect recipe for for these realities. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing the evidence of it. Mm-hmm. Um, people are less happy, 10 times less happy than the people in our grandparents' generation. Uh, so something's happened. And I I identify it as, as both some of these just sociological, cultural factors, like the production of technology, which is really good, but it has side effects, and a shift in worldview. And the mm-hmm. point is that in a large sense, you are what you think. I mean, the truth is that your emotions, 
as Dallas Willard put it, they're wonderful servants, but they're terrible masters. Mm. And your master has to be your thought, because as the proverb says, as one thinks in his heart, so is he. And so the, the abandonment, as Stan pointed out, of reason as a part of the life of the disciple and the privatization and these subjectivizing of faith cut people off from the the very sense that their minds mattered in their Christian lives. So people turned to worship music and to sermons that make them feel better, which mm-hmm. I absolutely love. Worship me, don't get me wrong, but they don't even think to say maybe what I need to do is learn more about why I believe what I believe. Mm-hmm. May I just share share a c- quick example of this? Absolutely. For two years, I, I have done a monthly Zoom lecture to a group of people in the movie and the rock industry that are they're Christians, and they are invited to join this, and, and they're, they're taking my lectures and my notes and putting them in a packet, and they're going to send it out to about 70 uh, or mo- more stars in the in the industry. But last night, I had one, and there was a woman who you would recognize some of the things that she has uh, directed and written scripts for first time last night. And my lecture was on evidence for the resurrection. And she came on because she has kind of drifted away from her faith, and she has been struggling with anxiety and loneliness and and fear and directionlessness really badly. And so she just, she'd heard about it and she wanted to just come on. So she did. After I gave the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, we had a little time to talk and she said, I cannot tell you how refreshing this has been spiritually because I feel rejuvenated and filled with peace and joy by simply recognizing afresh the solid foundation on which my trust in the resurrection of Jesus and my hope of heaven is built. Just the act of giving her that foundation helped her. Now, she's got to work through issues, but I'm just telling you Mm -hmm. that this kind of thing has spiritual and emotional impact as well as just uh, as equipping. Mm Mm-hmm. We will return to the show in just a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. Do you have a child, relative, or friend preparing for or attending college? What they need most are Christian professors who can help them learn to love God with their hearts and minds during these impressionable years. Global Scholars equips Christian professors to be there for them and walk with them during their years in college. Please visit www.global-scholars.org to learn how you can help equip Christian professors to show Christ's love on a campus near you and around the world. Please also check out Stan's other podcast, College Faith. While this podcast is focused on the ideas prevalent in our culture, including our universities, the College Faith podcast is more focused on the practical issues of thriving in college as a Christian. Students, as well as parents of students and soon-to-be students, will enjoy hearing from the guests Stan has on the show. Visit collegefaith.net or download episodes on your favorite podcast platform. 
And now, back to Thinking Christianly. So, JP, I'm curious. Um, when this book was released in 2019, it was before, or at least the world was unaware, of the havoc a global pandemic was about to induce and all of the uncertainty that would come with it. And, you know, we were we were already anxious and worn thin and just the fallout of that has really exhausted a lot of our yes. resources or people have, it's, it's kind of been the straw that has broken the camel's back for a lot of people in their own mental health. And I'm curious if there's anything from the book you would like to emphasize, or if there are any additions you would like to make to address specifically the culture we found ourselves in. Uh, yes. I'll start with the general observation, then I'll move to what you're focusing on. People watching us who are dealing with anxiety, I would recommend three things. The first one would be to go to a psychiatrist. They, they're, they're not counselors. They're people who specialize in brain chemistry. Don't go to your GP. Your GP doesn't know a lot about this. Go to specialists mm -hmm. who can see if you need medication and don't be embarrassed about it. In, in my book, Finding Quiet, I give an entire justification, both biblical and, 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 and commonsensical, for why this doesn't mean you've got a lack of faith. Uh, it, it, you should not be embarrassed about it. The second thing is, if you know a good Christian therapist in your area, you get into some counseling. And then third, get a hold of my book, Finding Quiet, because it will guide you into some spiritual practices that are going to help you tremendously. And try all three. now. Regarding the pandemic, that was one of the best times for me that I've had in a long time. It was an utter year or so period of refreshment for me, but I'll tell you why. When the pandemic hit, I had already been practicing the things in the book, even before I wrote the book, because I didn't want to write things I didn't know in my own life worked. One of the things that I practiced is the practice of learning to be alone and to turn loneliness into solitude and quiet with an awareness of God being with me. Now, that takes practice. I learned that while this is not true in every case, and Jordan, you, you and I would be examples of where we did have a, a genetic factor, but in the majority of cases, anxiety is a learned habit that can be unlearned by forming new habits through practice. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 6 and, and other places. So what you have to do is if you've been traumatized and have still not gotten over whatever happened to you during that COVID period, I would recommend that you begin two quick practices. One would be the practice of gratitude. Just every day, practice expressing gratitude and work toward being a half full instead of a half empty person. Won't happen overnight, but if you practice this for, say, three months, you're, you're going to change your character and you'll be much more grateful when you get up in the morning. The second thing I would recommend is that you learn to spend time at some place that's away from noise and just open your heart to God and be still before him. This is not a time to 
make petitions. That's for another time. It's a time to say, Lord, I'm here. I'm in your presence. Um, you can do with me as you want. If you want to let me sense your presence or if you have something to say, I, I'm doing my best to be here. And then you learn to train your mind so it doesn't wander. And what scientists have discovered is that if you engage in that kind of behavior for 12 minutes a day for eight weeks, they do a brain scan before and after. And what it does is bring substantial healing to the anxiety centers of the brain by just doing that one activity. And in Finding Quiet, I've got a whole description of it, but right now I'm going to keep it simple. And that is you just practice getting alone in a quiet place where nobody's going to bother you. And you want to try to quiet your heart, relax your body, and just open your heart to the Lord and say, Lord Jesus, I'm here. I love you and I'm, I, I want to be in your presence. And then learn to keep your mind by bringing it back when it gets distracted. Those would be some things I would say. And I would close by saying, if you were traumatized by the COVID epidemic, you're not alone. Mm. Don't feel embarrassed about it. There are millions of people, including your brothers and sisters, that are working through the same thing, but you can get better. Thank you, JP. Yeah. That's really helpful. It's interesting how some of this dovetails with some conversations I recently have had with um, somebody on, on the role of spiritual disciplines and in, in growth for my other podcast, the College Faith Podcast. She observed that a great way to focus uh, in, uh, your mind such that it doesn't wonder is just to light a candle. Ah. Or or sit out around a fire. Uh, you know, I think we've all experienced where you sit around a fire. Yes. You gaze in the fire, and you you can have conversations, or even just have a, a a time of contemplation where your mind isn't wandering as much because you've got something you're focusing on that is I don't know about mesmerizing, but at least tends to clear out all those other distractions. And I just thought that was so insightful. Wow. Well, and you know, I, it, it, fire and candles for, in my life are very calming. I mean, if I'm sitting around a fire and looking at it, uh, it really kind of brings calm. Yeah, yeah. And the same when if my wife lights candles, mm -hmm. you know, or, and so on, it just brings, I like that. I don't know what it is. The yeah, glow is right. just mm -hmm. kind of calming somehow. It, 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 yeah, it really is. That's a great idea. Great idea. It really is. Mm -hmm. Hey, I've got a follow-up question that came to my mind uh, when you were sharing that. How do you find a good counselor, Christian counselor in your area? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, there are two things that you can do, I think. The first would be to go to your pastor and the pastoral staff. I might ask more than one of the members, who are the really solid Christian therapists that you all recommend and you found to be really trustworthy and help people? And see if you can get some names from the leaders of your church. If not them, then maybe there are Christian friends that you have in the area that you could ask them as well. So just ask around to see if a name comes up regularly okay. and go see them. The second thing you can do is you can call Biola University at 562-903-6000 and ask for Rosemead School of Psychology. And when you get the assistant 
at Rosemead School of Psychology, you say, I live in so-and-so, and I would like to know the names and contact information of any Rosemead therapists in my area. And I have found that Rosemead trained therapists, that's the doctoral school of psychology at Biola University, they are really good counsel- good counselors. They really are. Now, you may find a bad apple here and there, no guarantees, mm-hmm. but they're they're good. Good. Mm-hmm. And I'll put a little plug in for Rosemead as well. When I was out working with you uh, on my master's at Talbot, I went over and took a couple classes at Rosemead as well on integrating theology and psychology. And I was very impressed by the emphasis, three emphases Rosemead had that I think makes it outstanding. Uh, one, and you touch on this in your book, was a theology of integrating faith and knowledge one can ascertain from the study of psychology, even from secular sources, but that because it is part of God's truth revealed through the natural order, uh, it can be brought into and integrated with theological understandings, which was really helpful. Uh, And so secondly, I guess related to that, there was a core set of courses that Rosemead students took in their training in theology. So they had a systematic theology core and those were the classes I took uh, that were really focused on integrating biblical theology wow. with the other things they were learning in their other classes related to, to psychology. And and thirdly, there's a component of spiritual formation also that John Coe gave leadership to, who's a oh. very, very uh, thoughtful person in the field of spiritual formation and spiritual disciplines. And so that component as well, I was yes. very impressed by, and and the result uh, being the type of person who graduated from that program sort of had the whole package uh, to bring to the table in counseling contexts. Man, that's great. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I, I, mm-hmm. That's a good word. Very good word. Yeah. And if you don't mind my answering that question too, sometimes it can be helpful to find out what some of the core theories are. So cognitive behavioral therapy, family systems therapy, um, whether you want to do EMDR, which you discuss in your book, which can be very helpful, but not every therapist is going to be trained in those specific things. So it may be helpful. Also, I definitely recommend first checking in with your church because generally they're going to have a pretty good idea of the lay of the land in the area and what certain people's kind of specialties are. But also if you're doing an online search and, you know, maybe you live somewhere more rural where there just aren't that many options or you're not in the States, sometimes it can be helpful just to search, okay, you know, I know I'm looking for a family systems therapist and someone who can meet with me and my spouse. Great. Then you Google that and you say in my area and add Christian on there. And often that'll at least get you started. And talking about finding a good counselor or therapist, please, please, if you get into a therapeutic relationship and you're finding that it is not helpful or good or that it just doesn't feel quite right, you have the option, obviously, to talk about it with that counselor. But also, you can go find another one. Yep. There are actually quite a few of them, and it is not worth your time and energy being spent with someone who may not be good for your particular situation or your particular personality. 
please let me just say that again. You have permission to leave a therapeutic relationship you aren't finding helpful. Jordan, can I add to this? Because I think this is a really an important uh, suggestion mm-hmm. about trying to understand uh, the different approaches to counseling and so on. Mm-hmm. There are two things you could Google. Uh, first of all, I would just Google what are the different systems of thought psychologists use in counseling? And you should get a little brief you know, you wouldn't don't have to read a book on it. You could probably read. Yeah. And, you know, we can link these kind of articles in the yeah. show notes, too, so people right. can find them easily. And then the other thing you could do would be to take what you think your problem, say it's depression or anger or maybe it's anxiety. Then you could just Google which approaches to counseling are best at addressing anxiety and mm-hmm. see and see what you come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you might find things like cognitive behavioral therapy is not particularly helpful for anxiety, but it's really helpful for people with phobias. So those can be, those are closely related, but not quite the same. And you can see where things might be a better fit or even narrative therapy can be really helpful too. So yeah, tons of options out there and, and lots of really good really good research on what is effective. And uh, JP, I thought you did a really excellent job in your book talking through some of the things that you suggest and where the research is for those suggestions that you're giving. There's some great footnotes and lots of really helpful information, especially in the back of the book. I, I found that that last section in the appendices so helpful. So yeah, I really so do. Good. I do recommend picking that up and if nothing else, flipping to the back for all of that information. Thank you. I do have a follow-up question, JP, to your your answer about how do you find a good Christian counselor. You seem to imply that it ought to be somebody local. So you you go to your pastor in your local church, you call Rosemead and ask who's in my area. So is there any value of doing counseling over Zoom or other type of video interaction? Or is there something about being present that is essential to to, to a counseling relationship that really helps you? Well, I'm not an expert on this. Uh, so, But I, uh, one of my very best friends has been a therapist for 40 years. And, um, and he and I meet every Wednesday for coffee. We're best buds. And we've been doing that for 30 years. So uh, I've learned a lot about this, and and I, here's kind of what I think I would say. It, it is not essential, but it is better if you can be in person with the individual. But if that's not plausible, a Zoom connection is a, a good second option. And it would probably be better to meet through Zoom with a really good therapist than to just pick somebody local because they're local, mm. but they're not all that well trained, and but yet you're meeting them in person. So I, mm-hmm. I, 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 that's kind of the general reflection I'm picking up mm-hmm. from my friend. That's helpful. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and some therapies may not be available unless you are in person. So things like EMDR, right? They're not something you can really do effectively via an internet connection. So. Those things that can be very, very helpful, that would be an in-person only situation. Mm. So you can mm. also do kind of a hybrid and that can be helpful as well. Mm. Yep. Thanks. 
I've got another question. I'm sorry, but if, if I can just <laughs> yeah. get this on the table, because it's one that uh, I know I'm asked a lot. I know you are as well, JP. You talk about this in the book. There is certainly a at least minority of Christians, might be a majority, who really don't think that if somebody is walking with the Lord and is a serious believer that they ought to pursue Christian counseling, that they should take any type of uh, medications for depression, that all that we're talking about is just a priori wrongheaded. Because as a believer, you've got everything you need in the Bible and the Holy Spirit. You're just not applying it well. Help us think that through. Yes. Well, first of all, uh, I'll just say quickly, the fact of the matter is that a lot of biblical characters knew, knew the Lord, but still needed help. So you have David, who walked with God, but he had times of very deep suffering and depression and fear. Uh, you, you have, obviously, Elijah, and his a well-known case. Uh, you have the Apostle Paul, who said at one time he felt the sentence of death within himself. He was really uh, down and discouraged about some things that were going on. But those guys were walking with the Lord, so that's just kind of naive. That's a failure to distinguish. Walking with the Lord is going to help you in these areas versus walking with the Lord will solve it and guarantee that you don't have this problem. That's just plain false. Now, the fundamental problem with this, Stan, is that it has an inadequate biblical anthropology, and it has an inadequate understanding of uh, what you referred to earlier, I'll just say general revelation. Now, let, let me begin with the latter. Jesus said that you should love your enemies, and here's how we know you, you should love your enemies. Look at how the rain works. He didn't say go to an Old Testament text or go to a biblical passage. He said, God causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust, even his enemies. And if you want to be like God. So the book of Proverbs says that you can learn a lot about life from watching ants or from watching the way that what happens to the harlot. Just observe. Just look and observe. So so the, the Bible's filled with exhortations to learn from general revelation. And if, as you said, God's truth revealed in nature can be, has been discovered, even by people who don't give him credit, they still can discover his truth, then it can be integrated into biblical teaching because it's truth that God has chosen to reveal that's outside the Bible. He doesn't reveal everything in the Bible. If something is taught that contradicts the Bible by, by psychologists, then I throw it out. But if the Bible doesn't comment on it, or if it's consistent with the word, then you can follow the evidence wherever it goes. The other problem is that in the book, Finding Quiet, I make a case for the fact that we are body, soul, and spirit. And that means that we have a a bodily dimension, we have a psychological dimension, and we have a distinctively spiritual dimension. Now, all three of these are not isolated. They interact with each other and affect one another. You you know, it's hard to have the joy of the Lord if you just smash your thumb with a hammer, you know, praise the Lord, you know, (laughs) while you're just dying. I mean, so (laughs) if you get Alzheimer's, you can't remember the things that God has done for you, like the Bible commands us. So look, I see medications 
as vitamins for the brain. It it gives mm-hmm. the brain chemistry that you should produce on your own, but aren't. Now, you have to check the side effects and all that. I get all that. But the point is, there's nothing in principle wrong with using medicine uh, to heal a whole number of things. And, and, and the Old Testament has examples of the recommendation of the use of alcohol for those that are distressed in life and are suffering depression. That's in the Proverbs. And there are other texts that do the same thing. The best book on this is a book called What Would Jesus Drink? And um, it is a theological and exegetical defense against abstinence, except in cases where people voluntarily choose that or they're addictive, uh, but that alcohol is something God gave us for a, a whole range of reasons. And one of them was medicinal. But the point is that now we have a better solution because these antidepressant medications really do a job. And so when I'm anxious or when I had my problems, I wanted to go after it with every facet of my being. So I exercised because that's that's good for your brain chemistry. But I also took supplements for my brain chemistry, like I would take supplements for my vitamin C or whatever you have, and it helped me tremendously. So that just seems to me to be the, the, what, a, what a proper biblical anthropology would tell us. We're not disembodied spirits. And uh, the spiritual dimension is one facet, a crucial one, uh, that so many people miss out on. But but we're, we're all three. Great. Yeah. And to the point about, uh, say, a glass of wine, you know, there's there's again, just to make a point of the obvious, the balance. Obviously. It's not violating the Ephesians 518 command. It says, do not get drunk with wine. No. But it's not going to the other extreme where no we would never uh use a gift from god like this ever and just reject it it's that balance and in the same way with with a prescription right the psychiatrist is finding that balance as well of yes it's not too much which is detrimental right. but it's not nothing right and they know how to do that mm-hmm. yeah yeah such that it's it's actually the right amount exactly the God desired amount, if you will, the, the the amount that matches well to what you need without being in excess. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Good word. Good word. Yeah. And JP, you talk about this in your book, but I've also found it true in my life that medication helps bring me to a place where I can engage with the issues that I need to engage with that that are clearly being presented before me as something I need to handle. I need to take care of it. And without medication, and I have found a really great doctor and that has been so helpful. Yeah, yeah. But without medication, I I can't even, I can't even engage with those issues. And there is a measurable brain chemistry imbalance that I experience. So it makes sense that if there's something that is measurably unbalanced that if it could be brought into balance with medication, great. And, you know, sometimes those are for a season and sometimes it's going to be like for me and probably for you, JP, it's, it's a genetic thing. I, I have come to my doctor many times and said, okay, so is this something I can ever (laughs) go off of? And she usually says, well, we can change doses and we can do these things, but maybe not. 
Yeah, maybe not. The way that your brain chemistry works. Yeah. This this is going to be um right. it's going to be with you forever. A lifelong thing. Yeah. Well, same with me. Now, this is so important. I I want to underscore it because what you just said is another real zinger. Uh just go back to to hitting your thumb with a hammer. If somebody while you're in excruciating pain exhorts you, let let's rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, you do, you're not going to be able to do it and mean it mm-hmm. until you get that pain to a manageable level. Mm-hmm. Now that's what you're talking about. And I was there myself. I was so far gone that you could exhort me all day long to trust in the Lord or do whatever. And it was not within my power to choose those things given the state of my brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. I had no control over it. I needed to get that to a place where I could then profitably do spiritual exercises and therapy. So you're dead center on this. And I want to say one other thing. I, I would never recommend medication only. Mm-hmm. Why would anybody want to do that anyway? I mean, if you're having a problem, why not use all the tools available to you? And my book will give you ways to engage in scriptural practices. Mm-hmm. Your chapter on contemplative prayer is very helpful. Well, thank you. You use that. Get a good a therapist if you can and, and, and meds. Try whatever you can to get better. But I would never say just use meds. Uh, I would use it like you suggested, and some of us will have to be on a life um, uh, maintenance dosage, but it doesn't bother me a bit. I don't care. Mm-hmm. That's so helpful. Has this ever been a, something that you struggled with, Stan? I can't say it has. Now, that doesn't mean it won't be in the mm-hmm. near or, or distant future, but it, yeah. Mm-hmm. and I don't want to get into why not, because I don't really know. But uh, mm-hmm. I've got my own struggles in other areas, but this hasn't been one of them. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I I really appreciate your your questions and trying to understand what this experience is like for us. I, you said earlier, oh, I'm sorry, I'm asking so many questions. And really, you know, it can feel it's not as if we've got a broken leg or something really obvious. And to have a spiritual yes. brother or sister say, what is this experience like for you? It's really meaningful. Absolutely. And um, I, I just really appreciate that from you, Stan. Well, Stan, and and, and we've known each other since right after Noah's flood. And, uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, I have never once felt you look down on me because I have a problem with anxiety. And uh, I want to say to those of my brothers and sisters who don't have this problem, and maybe you have a tough time getting why some people do. That's perfectly understandable if you don't get it. But but don't let that justify you looking down on them. Because we all have our own areas of brokenness. Mm-hmm. But they're not always in the same area. And so be kind and, and, and loving to those of your brothers and sisters who might have their brokenness manifested in, a, in an area like anxiety that you don't tend to grapple with. Uh, as Stan said, you'll have your own areas and, mm-hmm. and we need to be uh, you know, kind to you too. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and through the years going way back, I've had some dear friends, colleagues, relatives who have struggled with, uh, with this. And uh, I've, I've just 
learned a lot from uh, from their journey and and the ways that they have really grown as a result again to your point earlier of you know seeing it as an opportunity to grow and to mature and to to live well with the realities of one's own situatedness right yes um and i've always been very and i'm thinking of one individual right now in particular who um who's who's rather well known uh and uh has uh has confided in me a lot of his struggles and i have been amazed at the way it has shaped his soul well beyond where i am in just a number of areas and that's certainly, wow. certainly true of you as well mm-hmm. jp as uh, as our relationships wow. developed and so um that's helped me to, to to try to understand more, although I really feel like I don't know a lot and I need to ask a lot more questions. Mm-hmm. Well, you're, you're doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> JP, I like the way, and you've said this earlier in this podcast and you said it in the book too, you talk about getting after it. Yes. You really do have to actively take care of what's going on. Now, as as a person who is in a place where I can deal with some of the issues, the underlying issues that may exacerbate anxiety. It's part of my job as a parent and as a person who lives in close community with others to honor the ways that I am invited into healing, even when my instinct is to run away (laughs) and push it off to a better time, you know, just kind of shoving it off. Oh, later, later, I'll deal with that later. Um, Absolutely. Yes. Well, and, and I, when I say getting after it, I mean you, you you've gotta you've gotta pull out the stops mm-hmm. and do do whatever you can to avail yourself of tools that are gonna help you. Now I do wanna say that I know what it's like to be in a in a state of depression uh where you you're you're neutralized. It's hard for you to even get up mm-hmm. you're sleeping ten or twelve hours or more a day, and it's just hard for you to even take a shower. Okay, and I and and I'd say, first of all, don't feel ashamed of yourself. Don't let anybody make you feel guilty or ashamed because you're going through a period where it is what it is. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not like you're trying to be that way. But here's what I would say, because, I mean, you're going to have trouble getting after it. I'd say, number one, mm-hmm. try to take some baby steps. And you can come up with your own examples, but one might be set a time that you're going to get up in the morning. and just walk around the block and read a few verses of scripture. So just start, just start doing a baby step. The second thing mm-hmm. is that we we do a lot better when we do it with others and we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're in community. So try to find a safe relative or friend that can help hold you up and keep you accountable uh, and that, that you can lean on as you're trying to quote unquote get after it that way you're not solo flighting mm-hmm. it you're 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 asking for help from others as you seek to journey through this mm-hmm. yeah that's great advice and it's interesting too and i think it's such a grace that the way that pain uh, ours or the pain of others reveals itself in layers over the course of our life so we may we may think we're doing great. And then we bump into something that's just like, ah, setback. The way that God allows those things to happen so that we can deal with little parts of that over the course of our life is such, is such a grace. And it's not, you are not a failure if you experience 
at least I, I certainly experience it as, you know, oh man, I really thought I was over that. Mm. Yeah. Really thought I'd gotten past that. And here we are again. I've just found it really helpful to remember that that is actually a grace because if I got it all at once, if, you know, I was trying to deal with it head on, it, it may be too much. Oh, it would be too much. Yeah. Yeah. And remember, Lamentations 3 says that God's mercies are new every morning. Mm-hmm. And they're they're sufficient to last the day, and uh, you're going to get new ones the next day. So you train yourself to live a day at a time, and you don't try to do things that require five days worth of mercies uh, mm-hmm. in in an hour and a half or in one day. Life doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. So that's a support with what you're saying. I, I really agree. Thank you so much, gentlemen. We are almost out of time. Any further comments we'd like to make before we go? Well, I'm the expert here because I've suffered the most. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, so I'll just say that I want you to know you have hope. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not shining you on here, but there really is hope that you will eventually, you will get through this and get better. Don't lose your hope because there are too many of your brothers and sisters, as we're told in First Corinthians twelve thirteen, where it says, no temptation has fallen you. And I think the word temptation mm-hmm. should be translated trial or hardship. I don't think it means uh, a, a moral temptation. Mm-hmm. So no trial or hardship has overtaken you, but such as is common to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and God will, with this trial or difficulty, provide a way of escape that you can bear it. So your brothers and sisters in the world are dealing with the same thing and they're making it. And that means that you, why are you the exception? Uh, You're not, I hate to tell you, you're not that exception. So (laughs) Mm, thanks JP. Great time together, folks. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. Both of you. I really appreciate it. Great conversation. Great conversation. We'll see you next time. All right. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Thinking Christianly podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation in the pursuit of faith seeking understanding. Be sure to check out today's show notes at www.thinkingchristianly.org slash podcast, where you can find more information and the resources we discussed. Finally, please do visit our sponsor, Global Scholars. Until next time, this is Jordan Plank, encouraging you to think Christianly.